Well, we sang some good songs this morning, didn't we? Amen. The joy of the Lord is my strength. He is my strength in everything. Amen? He is indeed. Let's go to him in prayer before we begin this this morning. Lord, you are indeed our Lord. And all of our strength, Lord, I pray, comes from you. Because, Lord, all that we do, it's all about you, not about us. So, Lord, as we come here this morning, as we're going to meet you in your word, then, Lord, I pray that we can meet you, bow down before you, receiving your word into our hearts so that we can become what you would have us to be. Lord, I pray that all the baggage that we brought in that front door, we just can just leave it right there and know nothing but you and the power, the joy, the strength, and everything, Lord, that we find in you, in your word as we meet you. Lord, all of this for your glory. Amen. Amen. You have your Bibles there. We're still in Hebrews. Anybody shocked? This is a good place to be in Hebrews. I got to tell you, we spent these last 10 chapters, or almost 10 chapters, um, seeing the glory of Christ, the superiority of Christ, who he really is. And I pray that as you've been reading this, and you've been reading the Old Testament along with it, that you see who our Lord is. Our God is seen through him. We have access to God himself now through our advocate in Jesus Christ who sits right there with him, pleading for you and me, interceding for you and me every day, all the time, without ceasing, and he always will. Amen? What a great God he is. If you have your Bibles there, we're in Hebrews 10, and I have to confess, I intended to go all the way through the end of 10, but we just couldn't get there. Uh, we're we're going to do seven verses today, 19 through 25. And so if you'll read along with me. Remember, we've come through this whole thing knowing who Jesus is, seeing him, who he is as our great high priest, our great intercessor, our friend, our savior, all that he is, and he's superior to anything else that there is. Beginning in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have great priests over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, and as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Oh, Lord, I pray you add blessing to the reading of your word. You know, as we've gone through this, I hope that you've emerged from all of this reading we've been doing about the superiority with Jesus Christ and that you know it. It's in your heart because only then are you going to be able to have the assurance that's promised here. We can now walk boldly knowing what we know about Jesus Christ. Anybody here going to say amen this morning? Yeah, do you know that? Do you understand that? Amen just means true, so it's okay to say it right out loud. It, it, if you hear anything that you don't like, we'll save that till later. <laughs> Kidding. Kidding. 
What an incredible journey this has been, though, up to this point, hadn't it? It really, I, for those, I've gotten a lot of really wonderful responses. But let me tell you what. Now, these seven verses is the turning point. We're now going to move from having learned to applying. We're going to go, we're going to apply what we know about Jesus Christ to our daily lives. We're moving from the classroom. I know there's a lot of teachers out there. We're moving from the classroom. Now we're going out into the world, knowing who Christ is, representing him, walking with him. He's going to teach us how to apply what we've learned and who he is living in us to our lives, to our daily walk. That's important. That's a pretty big turning point. Are you ready for this? Huh? Okay. These 10 chapters have been like what, what theologians, I just love using all these theological terms, what they call indoctrination. And if it's truly believed, then you ought to have a bold assurance of who Christ is in your life. Listen to verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, that confident access to God himself comes from this torn curtain of Christ's body. Did you get that? What is that saying? Is one of these terms we don't understand? Mm -mm. The tearing of Jesus' flesh. He died. And as we learn in, in Matthew 27, 51, the curtain that was between us and God in the temple is now torn. It's not there anymore. Jesus is our torn curtain. We now have access to God through Jesus Christ himself. And yes, he died, but you know what? He's alive today. And where is he? Sitting right at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Now we can go into the Holy of Holies ourselves through Jesus, our high priest who's already gone in before us. But before the only access was through the high priest. Remember that story? I mean, this guy would get all prepped and had to live a perfect life and did everything. He even had to take baths every day for a week. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. That, that part's okay, but he had to take holy baths, right? And then he, and then he went in and all the people outside, because he was going in to, 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 uh, to uh, offer sacrifices for our sins, all the people's sins. So he went in for just a few minutes, once a year. And then he had to come out or he'd die. Jesus has already done that for us permanently. So because he's done that, look at verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled and cleanses from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We're good to go now, folks. We can go to God directly through Jesus. You know, before the high priest couldn't stay in for a few minutes. Why? He'd get nuked. Wasn't going to live because he couldn't be in the presence. We can now through Jesus Christ. Are you, does not not give you an excitement? Huh? We get to have the power of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, yes. We have the power of God if we just bow down before him and go in with Jesus. We have a strong confidence in our access because of our, because of our confidence in Christ as our intercessor. Since, by the way, that's the same word for lawyer. Advocate, He's the one that's going to go in and represent us. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God. 
all of the beauty of the tabernacle. Remember all that? We read all that. I don't know. I don't think anybody here was as impressed as I was, but I can't imagine when I start picturing, you know, the, the, the tabernacle with all of its appointments and all the gold and the silver and, and, the, and the wonderful things to bring glory to God, granted. And, and, re, and remember when um, Aaron would put on his clothes, he had to put on those perfect clothes. He had all those wonderful clothes. And then what they do? They put blood all over it. Now we have the blood of Jesus Christ. that's dressed us so that we can go before God in a worthy way. And remember, when he put on those clothes, this part really impressed me, is uh, he put on those 12 stones, memory called on the ephod, because they represented what? The 12 tribes of Israel? You know what he was doing? It was representing his people that he represented and he also had to wear those stones on his shoulder because he was bearing the burden of them going into the temple. <laughs> Jesus has done that for you and me. He goes in because we are now inside him as his children. It's kind of exciting stuff, isn't it? That's how we know we can boldly go out where no man has gone before. <laughs> uh, we can go out. Because we're inside Jesus. His torn body and his, his, his shed blood provides our access to the presence of God himself. Hmm. That, that means that, you know what that, what does that mean to you and me? That means that we can move through all of the sin world. Anybody here found sin this week in the world? Yeah. And it's always pulling at you, isn't it? We can go out and we can move through all of that with bold confidence. It can't get to us. You know, we may just look at it and say, oh, no, no, this is pulling me in. Well, let me tell you what, it can't if you're going with Jesus Christ. It can pull at you. But here, you know, I've, I've said this several times this week, unfortunately. You cling to Jesus Christ. You don't let go, and I'll promise you this, he doesn't let go. You cling to him, and you're going to make it through all of this sin towards the world. And here's the thing, we can do that with bold confidence is what it says right here. Now, that's not arrogance. I see a lot of people out there trying to, you know, go through the world. I'm Christian. Let me tell you what, that didn't work either. We go with bold confidence because we, we know for certain we've, we're safe in Christ. You can do that. And the strength of the power of God through his son, Jesus Christ. We have God's strength in us. And we can say with Paul, I love this. You're going to hear this a whole lot from me because it's, uh, I'll have to remember it every day. In the NIV, it says, what then? Because of this, Paul wrote, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen it is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Whoo! Can we read that again? I hope that did for you what it does for me. Isn't it great to be in the Lord and know that nothing can get us? And God is not just looking down favorably on us. I hear that a lot too. You heard that? Hmm. We're victors. Jesus Christ has already won, and we're in him. So we're victors in Jesus Christ along with him. You know what? I hear a lot of people say during the week, oh, no, I've lost. I've fallen in sin. 
Stop it. You know what? We may get defeated in a battle, but you will not lose the war because we're with Jesus Christ. He's already won it. We have access to God through his power who made it all, who's won every battle through Jesus Christ. <laughs> what more do you need to have bold confidence? I don't know. Anybody think of anything? I can't. I was reading this week some of the old, some of the old guys, but I want to tell you, I want to just give you an argument real quick. This was a preacher, and he was actually preached that he preached for two and a half hours, and everybody was great. What a great sermon. And he did it every week. But you know what his complaint was? He said, yeah, you guys come and you stay for two and a half hours. And then and you're, everybody's all charged up, and you run off to the horse races. That was his problem. Everybody was taking all their joy and everything, then going out and not really walking boldly with the Lord. They're going out to the horse races. Sound like around here a little bit, doesn't it? That sermon was preached in 285 A.D. Same thing, isn't it? That man, I love to read him. His name's John Chrysostom. Uh, Chrysostom means gold dust. He was, taught, he was known as the preacher with the gold tongue, the golden tongue. Let me tell you what really happened in his life. He knew that bold assurance. He knew he had that. And he preached in a Roman culture when Rome was fallen. And they, they were going to go, they actually moved the church from Rome over to Constantinople. But he was back there telling, he preached against government control, against giving in to, to anything other than Jesus Christ. He had preached against the sin of his day, which was the same sin we have now that we've even tried legalizing. He preached against abortion. Whoa. He did that when? How long ago was that? Hmm. A long time ago, wasn't it? He preached it, and then when the church moved to Constantinople, this is really great, they kidnapped him and moved him to Constantinople. <laughs> and that's where the center of the Roman government was, too. Well, he, he was preaching the same thing there, and the emperor said, you got to stop, buddy. You can't be doing that. And so the emperor brought him before him, and here's what he said. I'm reading this from a translation someone else did, but it's okay. He came before the emperor, and here's what he said. The emperor says, I'm going to banish you, kick you out. And he says, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. I know the guy that owns the place. And he said, then the emperor said, but I'll kill you. I will slay you. No, you can't do that either. No, you cannot, said the noble champions of the faith, for my life is hid with Christ and God. Then he says, I'm going to take away everything you own. I'm going to take away all your treasures. Oh, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there too. But I will drive you away from man and you shall have no friend left. No, can't do that either, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there's nothing you can do to hurt me. Amen? Amen. Yeah. That's bold assurance, isn't it? We have that same confidence because we have access to God. 
Look at 19. Therefore, my brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that is because of the confidence that we have from our great access and advocacy of Jesus Christ, he said, let us now draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Under the old covenant, when priests were consecrated, they were sprinkled with blood. You can go back and read that. I know a lot of us have recently in Exodus 29. And also when the old covenant began, the people had been sprinkled with blood. The people sprinkled with blood. Everybody sprinkled with blood. It's in Exodus 24. But with the new covenant, when someone comes to faith, their hearts are inwardly sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Mm. Kind of moving, isn't it? For the first time in their lives, people who come to Christ can have a completely clear conscience because they've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. And then what happens? Then they get baptized and their bodies washed with pure water. Ah. An outward visible sign in the inner sprinkling or cleansing. And that's what they've experienced. So now, 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in, in uh, full assurance of faith. The heart, you know, it, it, we can get into all these theological things where they've analyzed what the heart means in the body. Some say it's the kidneys, some say it's whatever. Who cares? You know what? The heart is the inner part of our lives in God. And that's what this is talking about. You know, where's your heart? And what this is saying, we need to come with a full heart, that means wholehearted. That's a word we kind of ignore. We kind of just throw around a little bit. But that means wholehearted. You know, if, if you look, remember the Beatitudes, if you look at the sixth Beatitude, says we are to be pure in heart, pure in heart. That means no mixed motives, no other agendas. We can't go pull, go putting different ones in here. You know, here's what I want, Lord. How many times do we come before the Lord with my heart without making it a pure heart before God? You know, we are just talking this morning. How many people come with a laundry list? You know, here's what I need, Lord. See you next week. We do that, don't we? We're supposed to come before him with a pure heart, a clean heart. And that means we've taken all that other stuff out. It's his heart, and it's where we meet him in a whole heart. John 4, (laughs) there was a lady that had a little talk with Jesus about worship. Remember that one? When she came to him, and, and he said to her, those who have the right kind of worship, desire to worship, have to do it in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. That's the entire human spirit engaged in work. That's the whole heart. Wholeheartedly. You know, when we were worshiping a while ago, man, I tell you what, knowing this, having read this and reading that, and, you know, in the eye of the storm, I was thinking we're all living in a storm, aren't we? Let me tell you how to get through that storm where you don't have to worry about the storm. Go to Christ. You just rest in him. And that rest is the true meaning of rest. It means stop. That's what rest means on the Sabbath. We're to stop and enjoy him and him only. 
That's how we, we are to draw near to God in real, genuine, completely baptized or absorbed in Christ. And our survival of the world is based on our ability to perpetually come to God. That means to pray without ceasing, to always come in before him with a sincere and whole heart. It's hard out there, isn't it, during the week? How do you have that pure heart when you got all this noise around you and it's nothing but sin? You know, you keep your eyes fixed on him. You cling to him. Um, when we prayerfully draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, we will be victorious. Guaranteed, Jesus has already won. Yeah, just do it. You get that part, and I know some of you do. The word, just so you'll know for this, didn't, the word for victory in Greek is Nike or something like it. And so whenever I see the Nike, I think about Jesus and just do it. Uh, just go to him. Just cling to him. And that's when we will be able to, are you looking at your Bible? To hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who, who promised is faithful. The hope we profess. I don't know why, but in the last couple of weeks, that, that word hope has been coming up a lot. And i got to tell you, we're going to get the answer to that here in Hebrews. But hope, you know, what are you hoping for? What does that mean in our culture? Here's what I'm hoping for. I want you to know your pastor has an inquiring mind. And with my inquiring mind, I went to that pure, honest, and most trustworthy resource, the Internet. And, and I, I found a poll that asked, what, are you, what is your hope for 2018? Wow, you want to hear what they said? Well, I, I found sincere responses, hoping relationships would change, hoping finances would change, that hoping that their leisure life would change, hoping their team would win the world championship and whatever they were, they were following. You know what I found? They all had one thing in common. They were simply enduring the present, waiting on something to happen in the future. Sad, isn't it? They were waiting for something to happen. They were waiting for next year. They were waiting for a better time. They were waiting for someone to die. They were waiting for something tomorrow and not now. So many people live on, on so little surviving in the world, just putting one foot in front of the other one, just going through as they depend on unsubstantiated, ungrounded hope. That's not hope. It's not hope at all, is it? With the Christian, we have something a whole lot better. You know what we have in our hope? We have something that has substance. Amen. It's very real. Listen to this. We read in Hebrews 6.19. We read that a couple, three months ago, maybe. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Whoa. I love that eye of the storm thing. You getting this? We have, an, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us. It's grounded in the life, death, resurrection, and Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's real, folks. It's very real, and that's our hope. So when you read about hope in the New Testament, that's what our hope is. It's Jesus Christ. He is the great hope. 
Let me tell you this. You know, I saw this about the nature. Do you know this? There's no ocean-going ship of any kind, sea-going ship, that goes out to sea without an anchor. Even nuclear subs have anchors. No one goes out into the storm without an anchor. You know what? They can all look to the captain who's going to lead them, or the crew, or the, or the motor, or any of that stuff. But if all that fails, the last fallback is their anchor. Our anchor's in Jesus Christ. He doesn't move. You know, in, in the storm, our anchor's in heaven. How much better does it get? And, you know, I think that's why early Christians, they actually took an anchor. You know, they did that ichthus, the fish thing, too. But one of their symbols was an anchor because they knew their anchor was in heaven. It was with God. You know, an anchor kind of looks like a cross, too. But, you know, it's, it's kind of a neat, neat thing. And maybe we ought to put an anchor up on the door. No, okay. <laughs> Literally, this verse this ver- reads, and let us hold on without even bending. In the Greek word, it means... You're going to hold on to your anchor, and, and when something pulls at you, you don't even move. You don't even bend. So it, it reads, let us hold on without even bending the hope we confess for he who promised is faithful. Our anchor's not in the sea. Our anchor's not in anything. It's in heaven. Yeah. And so let me hear this. Let's, let's finish that eye of the storm thing, can we? You know, you get out in the storm and, and the sea picks up and you start bobbing around and the winds. You ever been in a boat when it was like that? We have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the rain's coming down and all that. We don't even bend. We don't have to because we have a solid anchor. We have to cling to him through any storm. Always cling to him because he's our anchor that holds firm. And here's the thing. We're commanded. Listen to this. This is one of the admonishments in there, the exhortations. What are you going to It's a command. It says, we are commanded to draw near to God with a sincere heart and to hold unswervingly without bending. You know, i got to tell you, I just thought of this. When I was a kid, when I, when I would get in trouble, what's the first thing? Anybody here? When you got in trouble, what would you do if you saw a way out? Run. Yeah. Here's the difference in us as Christians. When we get in trouble, we've done something wrong, we run to Jesus. Amen. And you cling to him. Amen. You know, as we've been reading through the Old Testament, every time you see anybody in the Old Testament that didn't find favor with God or did find favor with God, some of the biggest sinners in, in the whole Bible ran to God. Amen. And they were forgiven. And the ones who didn't, well, they weren't forgiven. We're commanded to draw near to God and to hold unsurrounded again. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, and let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. <laughs> There's a silly story that I, I got from a, another silly preacher, and, um, but I want to share you. It's a story about a, a little boy. Uh, and, his, and his dad went to church one day, and they were, his dad was showing him around the building. And uh, they came to a plaque on the wall, and the little boy said, Daddy, what is that for? And he said, oh, his father, oh, that's a memorial to all who died in service. And he says, which one, the 9 o'clock or the 11 o'clock? <laughs> you know, we always have some reason for not going to church, don't we? 
You know, people have a million reasons for not going to church. And there's nothing new under the sun. I told you the story about John Chrysostom. You know, his, his folks loved the sermon. I'm sure they said amen and all that stuff, and then they ran off to the horse races. So if you're reading along in the Old Testament, you've seen reasons that mirrors today's excuses. You know, I want more. I want more. Just give me some meat. You know, do they got all those quails running out their nose and everything? Or there's something else I really need to do today, Lord. Like I need to go out and pick up sticks out in the field. And he got nuked because he didn't go to church on the Sabbath, did he? And I want to get a place, that place for lunch so I can get ahead of the Methodists, you know, so I, I can get over there earlier and I can, I can get a better seat. Or, you know what? The Pharaoh's playoffs are this afternoon, and I really need to get there soon enough, right? Mm. That early Jewish church had the same excuses, I believe. And you know what? They also had a falling off in attendance. That's that's reason uh, this guy wrote the letter, whoever this is. You know, they were ostracized by the people in their in their community and in their where they lived. They had apostasy going on inside the church. They got arrogant. All those things. Persecution and ostracism may not be our sin today, our biggest one, but it's there. Isn't it? Uh, but people seem to find reasons to miss church. No matter what it is, they're going to find excuses. There are solid biblical reasons why we need to be here on Sunday morning. Um, let me tell you, the first one is, is what uh, I actually went and looked this up, and I, I read it, and I thought, oh, we're never going to get there from here. It's a theological term. It's called ecclesial ontology. Everybody here want to talk about that? You know what that means is there's a special presence of Jesus in this service right now. That you're not going to, you'll find him alone. Yeah, you can find him alone. But let me tell you what, there's a special presence right here when we all come together and worship him together. I find strength in that, do you? Let me tell you what, he does too. He likes for us to come together. Where's that in scripture? Well, let me tell you. You know what the first one that comes to mind is the first chapter of Revelation. You ever remember reading that? He's talking to the seven churches. And it's a great testimony about Christ. He holds the seven stars in his right hand, walks among the seven golden lampstands, which are symbolic of the church. We meet Christ in a special way when we all come together like this. I hope you do. I know I do. I know many here do. We come together to him. It's true, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, but you know what? You don't have to go home to be married if you are, do you? But here's the thing. If you don't, you're not going to have a relationship that's flourishing and growing. There's another reason why you shouldn't miss church. And so that you'll, you'll hinder your ability to glorify God in worship. You know, think about that. These, the people that lead our worship, they come here on Monday nights and they, ha they actually have a worship experience. You know, maybe we all ought to come on Monday nights. Martin Luther did that with his church. Do you know that? They actually met on Thursday nights before Sunday. The whole church is required attendance. And they all had to come and worship, practice what they were going to do on Sunday. Isn't that neat? These guys have a heads up on us. They get to do that every Monday night. Hmm. I'm envious a lot of times, you know, because they do. They go to God's word before they prepare here too. I think.
think that, you know, you can see that out there in human life. I'm sitting here looking at my, my brother, Patrick. I'm sorry, I don't mean to put you on the, on the spot, man. But he's also a music lover. Here's the thing. We went, we went to some, some, uh, a concert here not too long ago together. It's one of those high concerts. You know, it's okay. But it, here's the thing. Because he's informed and he loves music, he practices it, he lives it, he's going to have a better time at that concert than, than anybody else. It's the same way with us in worship, isn't it? We need to know him and practice it. Come before him every day, walk with our worship. You know, one thing we, we, we try to say at the beginning of each worship service, because we want someone that's never been here before to know who it is we're worshiping with, we tell them that we worship Jesus Christ, our Savior and God, all week long, all the time. And then as individuals, and then we bring that, that whole worship service that we're having together corporately. You know, back in Christmas time when they were doing all that singing in the mall by mobs, you know what we're going to do on Sunday mornings? We're going to mob Jesus. How do you like that? How would you like to be a part of a Christian mob? Huh? I think that's a kind of a good idea. I like that. Martin Luther also said this. He was a real worshiper. He said, at, my, at home in my house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. And I bet his wife didn't like that. At home in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and breaks the way through. Yeah, is there a fire in your heart this morning? I hope there is. Yeah, because we're all worshiping together. We're all bringing it together before God. There's an easy case to be to make that uh, giving up meeting with other believers actually hampers our theology too, our knowledge of God, our indoctrination. You know, Paul in Ephesians 3.18, he prays that the church in Ephesus may have power together with all the saints to grasp and to know this love that surpasses all human knowledge. Hmm. Great theological truths are best learned corporately. We were just talking about that, weren't we? We all come together. I wish you could have been in Sunday school this morning if you weren't. Because we're talking about what we've all been reading. Isn't that neat? How we all discover things and it brings us closer to God as a body. And it was working this morning, wasn't it? Yeah, I hear some amens out there. The group's getting bigger every week. He should come. And here's another reason in learning to love in Christ. You can't really learn and you can't really grow in Christ's love for his people if you aren't living and growing with them. I really cherish our time together. You know, Wednesday night we had a really good prayer time, didn't we? We all came before him individually, but as a group. It was wonderful. We had sincere, wholehearted prayer before our Lord and our God. You know what? You can't even learn to practice the last six of the Ten Commandments without engaging them with people. Because you see, the last six of the Ten Commandments are about people and how we are to live together. And you know what? We all break them in our hearts, maybe, or some, some other way. We all do that, but then what happens? We come together before our God as a body and give it to him. Mm. Mm. You may be able to develop faith and you may be able to develop hope alone. I wouldn't recommend it, but you can, but not love. You have to do that with other people that are believers. 
De developing love is a communal activity of the church. You should know that, folks. So for all these reasons, it's impossible to be a good Christian without voluntarily staying away from the assembled church, when you voluntarily stay away from the assembled body of, of uh, Christ's people. The author of Hebrews is, is pleading with his people right here, don't do that, because he knows what will happen. The church will die. We need to not do that either. We need to come together as often as we can. So what do you do? Last verse, 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good, de good, uh, good deeds. You know, the idea of spurring someone, you know what? I was in Texas last week. And you know what? They wear spurs on their boots down there. You know why? So they can goad the, heart, the horse. So they can use those spurs to make the horse jump. Now, that word spur here actually means a sudden and, and, and violent, I guess. But a sudden and, and violent surge or urge. It's a really strong term. And matter of fact, I think most translations say provoke. The word means this is sudden and, and violent emotion here in, the, in this case, and it's used to describe sharp disagreements elsewhere in the New Testament. Remember when uh, um, uh, Paul and Barnabas, and uh, it's, it was in Acts 15, they had a sharp disagreement, same word. And what happened? They didn't get mad at each other and punch each other out. One went one way and one went the other, and the church spread. And the gospel went to the outermost parts of the world because of a sharp disagreement. They were spurred on. Here in this one, it's actually, it has a pleasant sense of all of us working together. Nobody's going to leave here and go off to Macedonia, right? Okay. So we're all supposed to stay here and work together. And it has a pleasant sense of prodding, prodding one another, our brothers and our sisters, for love and good deeds. We're to prod one another, to provoke one another. Now, we're supposed to know each other and love in another body so that we can provoke each other to be blessed acts of grace. Encourage one another. Provoke, prod, spur, whatever you want to, to do godly things, things from God. We're so blessed to be blessed irritants. How do you like that? So is the Blessed irritator, chief irritator, the chief provoker. You know, I've provoked a lot of folks here, I know. It's to love and good deeds. That's what we want to be doing for him. If we especially pray for each other by name and especially pray uh, for the development of voluntary, selfless love that we get through Jesus Christ, this agape thing that we all, that's what that is. For specific good deeds and for specific things that he has given us right here in front of us, then you know what, folks? It'll happen. I believe it'll happen. I don't care what Abraham said. It's really simple. It's really simple. If you think your spouse or your boss or your pastor or whoever, you know, is being irritating, well, just pray for them that they have some sort of, they get struck by niceness. How's that? Uh, the second powerful way to provoke one another's onto love and good deeds is by example. 
Oswald Chambers said this. I, you know, I read Oswald Chambers every day. If you don't, that's a good thing you can do. It doesn't take long, and it's actually what comes up on my desktop every morning. But in his July 10th reading, if you want to go find it, he says this. It is most disturbing. It is most disturbing thing to be hit squarely in the stomach by someone being used for God to stir us up. Yeah, isn't it? We need to get in there with them, don't we? Support them, pray for them, whatever. Someone is full of spiritual activity, he says. It's been said in many pulpits that loving God and man and doing good deeds are more readily caught than taught. That's one of those things. That, but you know what? I believe that's true. Do you? You see somebody else doing good? You know what? We need to be doing that too, as long as we're doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. To provoke others upward by example is the best way to provoke. So anybody here want to go provoke somebody this week? I hope you will. I mean that. I hope you will. And let me tell you what. Here's the basic way that we know, we know all of this. This is our basic primer. God's word. Uh, when we internalize it, when you make it part of it, you know, you, everybody takes it in through their ears or their eyes or however they're getting it into their head, but you've got to move it from here to here. And that comes by, by doing things through Christ and for him. And then we become examples, don't we? Then we become provocative, real provokers. Let me tell you what, the most neglected thing I think that we, that we need to be doing to help one another here is to spur others on through words of encouragement. We, as Christians, we're, we're really good at shooting each other, aren't we? But you know what? We should be encouraging one another. I was looking for, for people who, who are godly people who sought their encouragement from the people around them. I got to tell you, the funniest one I, I, I got is, is Robert E. Lee. He got, you know, he was a godly man. He actually preached and he lived out his life in a, in a lot of ways that he didn't really get credit for. But let me tell you one thing he said. You know where he said he found his best encouragement? It wasn't from a group. It was from Paul. He said, you always knew where Paul had been. He either started a riot or a revival. And when thrown in jail, he came out with a cell door under one arm and a convert under the other. That's encouraging, isn't it? That's encouraging, isn't it? Yeah. Let me tell you what. I read a story. Charles Durham, who, was a, who is a great writer, he wrote this book called Temptation, Help for Struggling Christians. It's an old book. If you haven't read it, uh, we can probably still find a copy if you're so inclined. It tells a story about where he found encouragement in the body. It wasn't necessarily a Christian body, but listen to this. One Saturday afternoon, I watched the telecast of the world's lightweight boxing championship match. The boxers were a 31-year-old Scotsman and a man from the United States who was six years younger. Well, the Scot was the reigning champion, and the bout was being fought before a crowd of 20,000 in Glasgow. The champion had said before the match that he would rather die than be beaten before his own people, but the younger contender had never before been beaten in a professional contest. Soon after the match, it became clear that the battle was going to be close. And as I sat watching, I heard something, unlike anything I'd ever heard before. It was faint at first, but it seemed to be... Singing? Singing at a boxing match? 
Gradually, it became louder. Hundreds and hundreds of male voices singing a strange Scottish melody. I could hardly believe it. They were singing encouragement for their champion as he fought for his crown, but even more for the respect of the Scottish people. They sang to encourage him. Guess who won? He said, I've not thought about that contest since without a lump rising in my throat, nor have I thought of it without thinking of how like Christians in battle, it's just like us. And how like the role of the church to sing encouragement to its members. We need to be singing encouragement to one another, folks. Encouraging others who are in the battle and then follow. We're following Christ. There's amazing power in an encouraging word, isn't there? You and I can change a life with just one kind word, but think how much lives we could change if we're all singing together encouragement for those who are in the battle, who are right out there in front. And you know what? That would be lives of provocation, wouldn't it? In today's culture, provoking. Informed by scripture and encouragement, those are all the gifts the church needs desperately. These eight verses that we've just gone through in Hebrews, they are terribly important. I think they're terribly important to us. In moving from instruction to application, we, we get a major understanding of our role in God's plan, don't we? They tell us we have the right confidence that comes in from our access and advocacy to, before God through Jesus Christ, that we, we are things we need to be doing. And it tells us exactly what they are. We have to draw near in prayer to God. We have to draw near to him. As a matter of fact, folks, that word says draw. I hope you don't mind, but I think I would say we need to run to God in heartfelt, wholehearted prayer. Our entire human spirit must be engaged. All that we are in prayer and meeting him. Second, we have to hold on to the, our anchor of hope. <laughs> I like that this morning. That We have to hold on to our anchor. Our anchor's in heaven. We hold on to that. We cling to it. It's Jesus. And he's interceding for us before God. We have to hold on to that. And we have to devote ourselves to the corporate body of Christ right here. God has put us all here for a reason, folks. You know, Wednesday night we said something that was really interesting. We were all sitting around talking about, you know, things have changed. And they are changing. And they always will be. You know, I'm a young man. But in my short life, you know, he's always been changing things. As long as I go to him. And you know what? He changes things for his glory not ours. He's doing things his way, not ours. You know, and this is not wishful thinking or wishful hoping that we're doing before God. We have a reason to be confident, don't we? We have to devote ourselves to that, to holding on to that anchor and running to him so we can provoke each other to love and good deeds. Will you do that this week? Look around. If your hope is in Christ, look around you. Look here in this room. See, when you see someone who is doing a good deed in the name of Christ for his glory, encourage them. 
Join them if you want to, if that's how you're led, but encourage them. Let me tell you what, when we do that, this church is going to ride right through the eye of that storm. It's going to ride on top of all those waves because our anchor is in heaven. Amen? Amen. And, and here's the thing. We must do this more and more as we see, look at the last words in our verse, the day approaching. I don't know when it's coming, but I believe it's coming soon. Lord, here we are, your people, before you. Lord, I pray that all of our hearts right now are just bare before you. Lord, we just trust you and we cling to you and nothing else, no rules or anything that man has made, nothing, Lord, just you. And Lord, we pray that as we do that, the storms around us, we can just ride on top of them, ride on through because, Lord, we're anchored in you and we're not letting go. And, Lord, our bold assurance is that you don't let go either. Lord, we're here to bring you glory. We're here, Lord, to serve you, to do work, good works, Lord, in your love. And, Lord, according to your perfect plan, Lord, I pray that you will keep our mind in all that we are fixed on you, clinging to you, Lord. And it's for you that we do this and we praise you and it's all for your glory. In Jesus' name, we ask and pray. Amen.